Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories like this one. Despite the notion that the readiness is all, serendipity plays a role in many a Hollywood story. I had a chance to write an article for Screen Actor, SAG's magazine. It would take me to the motion picture home in Woodland Hills. I was going to interview actors who were living there. I met Virginia Sale, who had small parts in more than 400 pictures. Eve Conrad had been a bit player at Fox. She said she got that job because she was a friend of Xanax and her alimony ran out. Rose Hobart had been blacklisted during the House on american Activities Committee purge of Hollywood. Ethel Smallwood had been a huge silent film star. She was so frail that she had to hold on to a railing when she posed for a photo. But as soon as she was in frame, she stood ramrod straight and turned her head ever so slightly to expose her good side. May Clark warned me that she didn't want to talk about grapefruit. She'd had one smashed in her face by James Cagney and couldn't live it down. Fair Nicholas was one of the famous Nicholas brothers. They did a million flying splits in a million Hollywood musicals. You can check all of this out on YouTube and Google. But here's where serendipity came into play. Faird's wife happened to mention that Bill Walker was getting a physical at the hospital and that he'd be a good person to interview. Bill was just packing up when we arrived at his hospital room. We got a photo and he gave me his number so I could conduct the interview with him at home. That chance meeting resulted in one of the most meaningful friendships of my Hollywood life. Maybe a week later, I went to Bill's prepared to grab a couple of paragraphs from my article. My first impression was that this guy has mischief written all over him. He'd been on the SAG board when Reagan was, first black man to serve. He was in his early 90s, but spoke with a clarity of a man half his age. As we started talking, I realized that he had lived an amazing life, not just in Hollywood, but long before as well. I asked him if he'd ever written any of this down. His wife quickly chimed in that she'd been trying to get him to do it for years. Next thing I know, I heard myself say, if I come over here with a tape recorder, will you tell your stories into it? Bill looked at me and said, you know, I like you. If you want to come over and listen to me talk, I think that'd be fine. I went back to Bill's with a tape recorder. We got stuck right into it. Bill was born on July 1st, 1896 in Anderson, Indiana, and he was raised by his grandparents in the nearby town of Pendleton. The reason he was raised by his grandparents was because his mother had left him there one night when he was very young and told him she'd be back in a little while. Bill spent that night in terror, afraid his mother had abandoned him. When she came back to get him the next day, Grandma went up to her daughter and slapped her. She said, I'm keeping this boy. Both Grandma and Grandpap had been slaves in North Carolina. Slaves. Both were illiterate, but Bill said they were the most intelligent people he'd ever known. Grandpap ran off and joined the Union Army during the Civil War. After it was over, he went back for Grandma and their children, and they settled in Indiana. When Bill started school in Pendleton, he was the only black kid there. He was also the first to graduate from Pendleton High. Fast forward to being an actor in Hollywood, and you have a miniseries before you can even bat an eye. But what you fast-forwarded past would be black history in America. 
Over the next few weeks, Bill filled at least 20 60 and 90 minute tapes with a story that if it weren't true, you'd never believe. I'll just hit some of the highlights for you. He was in an all black field artillery unit in the trenches during World War I. He worked as a butler for the president's widow, Mrs. Benjamin Harrison. He went to college at Butler and University of Illinois. He sang in a speakeasy called Kelly's Stable in Chicago during Prohibition. He was in Paris with Bricktop and Josephine Baker. He was on Broadway with Cary Grant and Orson Welles. He was in Harlem during the Renaissance. He owned the Ninth Hole in Detroit, an upscale gathering place for both black and white. Anybody who was anybody hung out there, from Judy Garland to Duke Ellington to Joe Lewis. He witnessed one of the bloodiest race riots in America from his roof. Mark Hellinger, who knew Bill from his Broadway days, offered him a part in his first Hollywood production, The Killers. That was Burt Lancaster's first film, too. To top it off, Bill integrated the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. From then on, Bill worked with practically everyone in the picture business. Like I said, Bill's life is a miniseries. It wasn't long into our sessions that Bill and I became pals. We'd shoot the shit for an hour or so talking about women, sports, politics, whatever, before we finally got down to business. And even after I had those 20 or so tapes filled, I'd pop over usually on weekends and we'd hang out. Lots of his black friends would drop in from time to time. They'd often look at me and wonder what I was doing there. Bill would say, no, Chris is okay. He's not no fay. He's got some African in him from somewhere back there. That seemed to satisfy them. I'm not going into the details, but Bill and his current wife, he'd had three before this one, let's say weren't on the same page all the time. After I'd finished recording his story, I wrote a synopsis, gave it a title, registered it with the Writers Guild, and copyrighted it. I told Bill I'd done it. He said, good. He believed his wife was trying to steal his story and knew that I'd protect him. She got a lawyer to send me a letter ordering me to turn over all the tapes. Then she insisted they move from their lovely townhouse, where everything was convenient, to an apartment in West L.A. where it wasn't. And then she spent most of her time in Canada, leaving Bill usually with a male nurse to look after him. Whenever she came back from Canada, she would fire the male nurse, because she didn't like him, whoever he was. Screen Actors Guild had begun a program of heritage films for their archives, interviewing members who'd been there from the beginning or at least early on. I thought they ought to interview Bill, since he was the first black man to serve on the board. I enlisted the support of all the minority members from across the country. There's no way we'd be refused. Bill told his story down the barrel of that camera like a pro. His wife came back from Canada for that. When Bill's 93rd birthday was coming up, he decided to throw himself a party. One of his many friends was a woman he called Susta. She was a light-skinned black woman who had no connection with show business, but was devoted to Bill. She helped him plan the party. When his wife got wind of it, she came back for that, too. Bill said it was because she thought there'd be important people there. One thing she didn't come back for was a New Year's Day dinner that Bill took me to. The widow of either Amos or Andy, I don't remember which, and maybe I never knew. Now, that reminds me. The reason Bill was asked to join the SAG board was because he'd given a speech for a black women's group in L.A. The NAACP had been critical of the television version of Amos and Andy. It had been a radio program originally with two white guys playing African Americans. The television version had black actors. 
Nevertheless, the NAACP claimed that the show was demeaning to blacks. In his speech, Bill took a different view. He said that the world created in that series portrayed black lawyers, black doctors, black businessmen, and therefore black actors in something besides menial roles. Reagan and the people who controlled the SAG board found out about it and invited him to join them. The way Bill told it, they thought they were getting themselves a boy, but he sure changed their minds about that. I will get back to the New Year's Day dinner, I promise, but I want to tell you about one particular board meeting. This is when the House Un-American Activities Committee was investigating Hollywood. Ward Bond, you can Google him if you don't know him, Ward Bond was recognized by the chair because he wanted to read a letter he had into the record. It accused Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, and a bunch of other well-known black artists, including Bill, of being communists. Here's the way Bill tells it. That room got so quiet you could hear a mouse pissing on cotton. Everybody was looking at me. I stood up and said the man who wrote that letter is an old, frightened man. He acts like slavery never ended and the Civil War was never fought. But I know differently. My grandfather fought in the Union Army. And I know something else, too. I know that Mr. Belafonte, Mr. Poitier, and the others mentioned are not communists and never have been. And the same is true for me. Why on earth would any of us take on that burden? It's tough enough just being an N. Walter Pidgeon, you can Google him too, began the applause and the entire board rose to its feet. Ward Bond never attended another board meeting. Now to the New Year's Day dinner. Mrs. Amos, or Andy, you know what, let's just call her Irma. She hosted a New Year's Day dinner every year. The menu was always the same. Genuine, home-cooked soul food. There were about 12 of us there. Irma was at the head of the table. Bill was next to her, and I was down at the other end. As we were sitting down, Irma said, Have you ever had chitlins before, honey? I said, No, ma'am. One of the other guests was quick to say, Boy, you in for a treat. Irma makes the best chitlins this side of the Mississippi River. Choruses, if that's right, uh uh-huh, and oh yeah, followed. Dishes of collard greens, black-eyed peas, and potatoes are passed around. Then Irma came in from the kitchen with a pot of chitlins, hot off the stove. She served a generous portion to each of us, saving me for last. She gave me an extra generous portion, since I was a new kid in town. They were all looking at me, waiting for me to take my first bite. I brought a forkful up to my mouth and caught a whiff of it. I glanced at Bill. He had his head low, looking at me out of the corner of his eye. Oh, I didn't put any hot sauce on it, I said. You're not supposed to eat chitlins without hot sauce, are you? I got a chorus of that's right from everybody and put that forkful of chitlins back on my plate. I dumped enough hot sauce on those chitlins to start a fire in my mouth, and I don't like hot sauce. But I figured it was the lesser of two evils. Bill was still watching me out of the corner of his eye. He looked like he was ready to bust out laughing. I took a huge forkful and shoved it in my mouth. The hot sauce burned like hell, but it masked the taste enough for me to swallow after a couple of chews. Mm-mm, now I know what you people are talking about. Bill had to look away. He was doing everything he could to keep a straight face. Our eyes met briefly. His said, how do you like the chitlins? Mine said, you dirty bastard. 
I ate the rest of my chitlins in two enormous forkfuls, and this time I just swallowed. No chewing. By then, everybody was tucked well into theirs and paid me no more mind, except Irma. My, my, this boy sure does love my chitlins. You want some more, honey? I looked straight at Bill and said, I'd love to have some more, but I want to save room for your sweet potato pie. On the way home, Bill couldn't stop chuckling. I wish you could have seen your face, he said. Like I said, Bill knew everybody in Hollywood, including one of the reporters at Variety. He'd done a feature on Bill a few years before and maintained a friendship. Bill's days in Detroit at the Ninth Hole were special to him, and he loved talking about him. It was during Prohibition. He had a thriving business, upscale clientele, the best chefs money could buy, the best cops money could buy, the best liquor money could buy which was supplied by the Purple Gang. The unique thing about the Purple Gang was that they were predominantly Jews. Tough Jews. Capone didn't even try to do business in Detroit because of the Purple Gang. Okay, with that as background, Bill told me what happened when this Variety reporter brought someone over a few days before. Oh, what's-his-name told me he was bringing an old friend here last week. I didn't know who to expect. You know, I've known a hell of a lot of people. Well, he came in the door with this man. He was well-dressed, grayish hair. Hell, he could have been anybody, insurance salesman, banker, studio executive. So he comes over to me, and while I'm trying to figure out who he is, he's looking at me, too. Then he says, oh, yeah, you're the end that had that club in Detroit. I remember you. I thought, I'll be damned. This guy's from the Purple Gang. After we talked for a little bit, I remembered who he was. Of course, he wasn't very important in those days, more like a numbers runner or something like that. But old what's-his-name knew he was going to be in town and brought him over. But he didn't want anyone to know he was here, you see. I said, what was he doing in Hollywood? Bill said, hell, you can't be that dumb. Figure it out. He was here on business. Bugsy, Mickey Cohen, Meyer Lansky, MCA. Who do you think the Purple Gang bought their booze from? The Bronfmans, just across the lake from Detroit. Hell, they're Jews, too. Wait a minute, I said. Are you trying to tell me that all these people are connected? Hell yes, he said. It's all legitimate now. Well, pretty much anyway, but that's how it all connects up. It all goes back to the Purple Gang. Of course, not all the Jews out here were with the Purple Gang, you know, Louis Mayer and some of those guys. But by the time MCA and Universal came into the picture, Purple Gang was in show business. I was dumbfounded. Whether it's true or not, it's a great story. Now I want to tell you one more of Bill's stories. He was in a movie called The Outcast with John Derrick. He played the blacksmith in this little western town. They were shooting across the street. Kids were running around, women in bonnets, general activity. Bill was sitting in front of his blacksmith shop watching. He got the attention of one of the ADs and called him over. Would you ask the director to come over here when he's finished that shot? The AD said, sure thing. When they got the shot, William Whitney came over to Bill. What's up, he asked. Bill said, got a question for you. Shoot. Bill took in the sweep of the town, the saloon, the bank, the general store, and said, I'm the blacksmith in this town, right? Yeah. Part of the community, right? Yeah. Well, then let me ask you something. Just who am I supposed to be fucking in this town? Whitney grabbed his head and said, oh my God. That afternoon, a clothesline was strung between the blacksmith shop and the building next door with a black woman doing her husband's laundry while two black children played in the yard. Typical Bill. He opened someone's eyes and got a job for some black actors. 
As time went on, I got another idea how I could honor Bill. I decided to produce a tribute for him and his contribution to racial harmony in Hollywood. I contacted the Directors Guild and they agreed to provide the space. I contacted people on Bill's Christmas card list to see if some of them would be co-sponsors. The list included Anthony Quinn, Charlton Heston, it was a Hollywood who's who, Gregory Peck. No one refused me. They would all be happy to lend their support, some even saying they would participate. And speaking of Gregory Peck, he credited Bill for winning him the Oscar. Bill played the preacher in To Kill a Mockingbird. Greg said, when Bill said, stand up, children, your father's passing, that clinched the Oscar for me. Okay, so the ball is rolling on the tribute. His wife came back from Canada. One day, while she was rubbing oil on his shoulders, she noticed a lump that hadn't been there before. It seemed to increase in size every day. She got alarmed and suggested that Bill have it examined. They went out to the hospital at the motion picture home for a checkup. It was malignant. I went to see Bill at home a few days later. He showed me the lump. You wouldn't think someone in his 90s would suddenly develop cancer. It seemed so unlikely. He didn't seem affected in any way by it. He wasn't in severe pain. He wasn't impaired in any other visible way. But this lump kept growing. Eventually, he had to go back to the hospital. The time seemed to condense and compress. In days, it seemed, he got worse and worse. I went out to see him one day, the last time I saw him. He was drugged so heavily that he was incoherent. I tried to talk to him without success. I stayed a long time, hoping I'd be able to at least say goodbye. Finally, I went to the head of his bed and kissed his forehead. I said, Bill, I love you, and started to leave. He reached out his hand and turned toward me. I took his hand and looked into his eyes. He was looking at me, and with what must have been enormous effort, he said, thank you, and managed a wild-eyed kind of smile as he squeezed my hand. He died the next day. Our friendship, our remarkable friendship, began and ended at the Motion Picture Home. I'm Chris Wallace.